me. <laughs> no, that's not it. As long as the household like 06 gives me for approval. Well, she you probably know, figured out the house was quiet. You know, there's things that man, you can manage Todd, because it's being constantly renovated. Every time I come home, there's a new room done, a yeah, put this new, thing new set of furniture. Hey, I keep the house from falling in. Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Rotations is pre-recorded in front of a live audience. Hello, everyone. This is uh, Todd Fredericks, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And today I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing a friend, a colleague, uh, a veteran, um, and an individual I've been trying to interview about this topic for in excess of two years. Uh, but finally, he and his wife were able to come to Athens and sit down with us, and uh, we're going to have a good discussion about what it's like to be a doctor on the bottom of the world. And so with that, I'm going to introduce Dr. John Allerding. Colonel retired, United States Army. Right. You have a winner over pin. I do. Very, very rare, very rare medal in the United States military. He's done that. And why don't you introduce your 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 better half? Well, my better half is uh, Peg Allerding. Uh, we'll be uh, married for thirty three years in uh, June. Uh, we've got two boys. Uh, she is my battle buddy and my uh, household commanding officer. So everything I have done throughout my entire medical and military career, as well as uh, Antarctic career, has been a direct result of uh, her ability to watch me come and go and hold down the household while I'm gone. That's awesome. Uh, you couldn't do it without her. That's awesome. Peg, thank you for being here. And Peg, if you want to, if you have something to chime in, just reach over, get about two inches from the microphone, and, and speak your piece. That's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, and then we also have Zachary Wills, who is a uh, OMS two. He's about to be an OMS three. Did you take your board yet? I have not taken my board yet. Why? June twenty eighth. Oh, was... that's the that's the countdown. The yes. clock is so... ticking. About 50 days out, so not counting or anything. And so he's helping me. He'll be asking some questions today, too. And uh, with that, we'll just, uh, we'll just get started. So, John, why don't you tell us about your background? Where, how did, where, how did, how, what got you to the point where you got to be able to go to the bottom of the world? Well, it all started uh, back in 1969 when I was a 17-year-old uh, kid graduating from high school, and my guidance counselor told me I wasn't college material. And uh, at the time, he's 100% right. Uh, so I ended up uh, enlisting in the Navy at 17 and uh, planned on seeing the world, and I saw a big chunk of it, but uh, it wasn't enough. And uh, from getting out of the Navy and gaining a little uh, self-confidence in my academic abilities, I decided to see how far I'd go before I could fall flat on my face, so I managed to finish college, uh, get into and complete medical school, and... Uh, I uh, had an exciting career in the uh, military and uh, medicine from that point on. 
um, board certified in family medicine. Uh, I was originally in a small town practice in my hometown where I grew up, uh, Loudonville, Ohio. Peg and I actually bought our old family doctor's house. He delivered all nine of us kids, and uh, we've lived there ever since. And uh, I was in practice with uh, Dr. David Bowman, uh, another uh, Kirksville DO, uh, until 1999. And then I decided that I was uh, kind of burnt out on family medicine. I still enjoyed doing the emergency room work that I had moonlighted in since uh, starting my family practice. And so I uh, left family practice and did exclusively uh, military medicine and emergency medicine from that point on. And uh, that's what I continued then throughout my career. It uh, freed me up to do a lot more military deployments, which uh, were of a voluntary nature. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you found uh, that break from high school to college. Did that help you, you think? I have no doubt. Uh, I, I grew up in the, the Navy and... Uh, like I said, I realized I wasn't as dumb as I had always thought I was. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes about the current methodology for people entering medical school, that we take them right out of high school through college, they ram their way through college, and suddenly they want to go to medical school. And sometimes I think having a couple of years to sort it out and get your focus in place is a helpful thing. I think bringing life experience into a medical career uh, has a far superior payoff to just academic experience. Yeah. And you've been, you've had the benefit of both. That So I recently had a colleague that seemed, had read an article and it, it sort of got their attention that the, the something, the article on the lines of the, the reemergence of the trades. And I had to explain to my colleague, I said, they never left. They've always been around you. You don't understand. Modern society doesn't work without the trades, but there's this idea among academics that the only way you can be successful in life is if you go to college and you have some academic career. And I keep trying to tell my colleagues, most of the people you meet don't have academic careers. They make society run. And by the way, they probably make more money than you do. So it's funny. <laughs> it's a weird thing. I'm glad you have both experiences to draw from. I am too. It uh, was uh, extremely beneficial to me. What did you do in the Navy, John? I was a communications technician uh, in the Naval Security Group, had a top secret security clearance. Um, it was kind of considered one of the uh, top positions in the military at that time, uh, other than uh, being on a nuclear submarine and uh, being a nuclear uh, person. Um, so I, I did mostly uh, cryptographic and radio equipment uh, operations uh, in uh, San, uh, Etzel, Scotland, and then in uh, San Miguel, Philippines, and spent six months on the USS Ariskany, an aircraft carrier in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, this was back near Vietnam. So 69 to 73, I was active duty. Holy cow. Cold War, too. It was Cold War, yeah. yeah. So I got that little box checked, too, as far as uh, service. And you've, and you've got your, you get your Southeast Asia service box checked for the VA. I did. I've got my Southeast uh, Asia medals and ribbons and because uh, it was six months of uh, time within the, uh, the area. Uh, fortunately, I didn't have to go on shore, uh, but uh, it was nice to be a part of all that. Were you ever on Yankee Station? Uh, I was on Yankee Station many times. So we, we, we got another interview to do, because I have another podcast that I'm going to start up pretty soon that's going to involve just interviewing Vietnam veterans. Yeah. yeah, and specifically because I'm, of course, a flight surgeon. So I have a specific interest in the and the aviators who are passing away, kind of like the World War II guys. You know, we've lost them all. And I want to make sure that we start codifying some of those experiences of doing that. And so I want to talk to someone who was on Yankee Station. 
because that has some famous implications for historians and people who know about what Yankee Station was for the it Navy. It does. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, see, I learned something. Uh, how'd you get interested in Antarctica? Um, about 12 years ago or so, I had a nephew who got out of the Army. Uh, he was a Log East transportation uh, officer uh, in Iraq. I uh, did two tours there, and uh, he says, uh, Uncle Steve, I'm thinking about taking a job in Antarctica. Have you ever been there? And I said, no, I haven't. Didn't think much of it, but that kind of planted a seed at the time, and so I uh, went on to the different websites for Raytheon, who was uh, the uh, main contractor for Antarctic positions at that time, and they weren't looking for any doctors. They were just looking for some physician's assistants at that time. So I kind of lost interest in it. And then I got a cold call from a recruiter uh, at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. Uh, that was in 2014 and said that he had seen my resume on Doximity or LinkedIn. And I sounded like a perfect uh, match for their uh, Center for Polar Medical Operations. And would I be interested in putting an application in? And it went forward from there. LinkedIn. LinkedIn and Doximity are both professional sites where you put your resume on and people can view it and approach you with uh, job offers or interest or whatever. Yeah, see, no, I, I know LinkedIn pretty well. Do you have a LinkedIn page? You do. I do, yes. You asked me to be your friend. You did. <laughs> I actually accepted. But see, I think so many of your generation think that what, they think of Facebook or they think of white. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, and actually in undergrad, we had, like, an assignment. So I was originally a business major in undergrad for three years before uh, decided to switch over to pursue medicine. So I was a student athlete in college, and so I wanted to be a professional runner for a really long time. I got hurt, and so, um, yeah, I got a D1 scholarship to go to Oklahoma State, so it's kind of roundabout way. And uh, during that time period, that's kind of like, they're like, oh, you have to get a LinkedIn. And it was, like, one of the very beginning stages phases of like at least when I heard of LinkedIn becoming a big thing so I haven't really done much with it yet but uh, I know it's huge and it's massive you will now because you can go to Antarctica if you get on LinkedIn right. that's how it works I didn't know that I always wanted to know how you get to Antarctica you go to LinkedIn and someone finds you on LinkedIn so so how did you connect with medical support operations in Antarctica I guess you've covered that I, I guess the bigger question now that you've said how they they kind of found you I yes. guess but what, what were the what were the qualifications they were looking for right I mean well, um, basically, they were looking for someone who had uh, shown evidence of being able to operate independently in an austere environment uh, who, and who had a uh, personality uh, that would be consistent with uh, good harmony, uh, working with a closed group of people in a uh, very isolated region. Um, the year that I was selected for, 2015, um, the U.S. Antarctic Program had made a special effort to kind of hand-select the team that was going down to the South Pole for the winter because previous winters there had been some problems with personnel and personalities, and they were looking to see whether or not they could get that program back on track and, and have a, the, quote, best winter ever. Um, <laughs> the best so, winter ever. <laughs> the best winter ever. And they've been doing winters down there at the South Pole since 1957. So they had a pretty good track record of, uh, you know, uh, experiences to draw uh, their, uh, you know, uh, criteria from. So uh, 
I had an extensive interview uh, with a, a number of the people who were involved with the South Pole Station, as well as people who were involved with the U.S. Antarctic Program and the National Science Foundation. And they asked me about two hours worth of questions. And uh, following that, uh, I had a psychiatric interview, of course, a full battery of medical exams. How'd that go? Uh, everything went uh, well as far as I know. I wasn't flagged. Um, uh, I think about a third of the guys I interviewed with were not PQ'd or physically qualified from a, a psychology, psychiatric point of view. They didn't go to the ice, or at least they weren't able to go to South Pole for a winter. They may have been able to go to Palmer Station or McMurdo Station for shorter periods of time, but they didn't have that totally locked down, isolated experience at the South Pole. So that 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 kind of you mentioned the word austere. What does austere mean in the context of Antarctica? Um, austere in the context of Antarctica uh, means that you will not have uh, ready access to any other health care. Uh, cooperation other than perhaps by radio or telecommunications for an extended period of time. Um, at the South Pole, the last flight out for the season uh, is middle February, and there is not another plane that comes to the South Pole until late October at the earliest. So during that time, the temperatures go to minus 100 plus uh, on a fairly regular basis, and uh, the average temperature is minus 76 during the winter. And the C-130s or the LC-130s, which is a C-130 equipped with skis, uh, and the DC-3s are not able to operate their hydraulics uh, at that temperature. Uh, the only planes that can uh, potentially uh, come in during that time are the small twin otters because they have mechanical uh, gears. And uh, those are the planes that have been used for the uh, few uh, emergency evacuations that have occurred during the Antarctic winter. So just put that in perspective, John. What does it, what does that, where does the, where, okay, you talk about Twin Otter, which, by the way, the Havilland product, one of my favorite airplanes in the world is the Twin Otter. <laughs> so if you ever want to see a Twin Otter, by the way, go to Air Maldives. They fly them on floats out in the Maldive Islands, and you'll see what a Twin Otter looks like. It's a very easy Google search. They're a very functional airplane. And by the way, there's a company called Viking now in Canada that's making them again because they're so, they went out of production. De Havilland Canada stopped making them. But because they're so, so functional of an airplane, uh, Viking Aircraft took over the licensing is now producing brand new Twin Otters, which is amazing because they're an awesome utility airplane. But what I'm curious about is I also know how fast that airplane flies. Where do they come from and how long does it take to get to you? Um, our planes come from Canada, Catabatic uh, Air, KBA, um, and it takes up to two weeks for them to get down to the South Pole from Canada, uh, depending on weather. And they usually come down in pairs. Um, not just a single flight because... Two is one and one is none. Exactly. <laughs> so the, uh, the several uh, uh, emergency evacuations during the winter that I'm familiar with uh, all came down from Canada. They launched from Canada. They launched from Canada. They refuel en route. Uh, their last refueling, I believe, is at Rothera Station on the uh, Antarctic Peninsula, which is a British station. And then there is one other fuel depot that they land and fuel themselves uh, before they get to the South Pole. So they don't stage in New Zealand or Tierra del Fuego or someplace closer. They actually, when you have a medevac, they have to launch it from they, Canada? They launched from Canada. Holy cow. That's crazy. 
it is what it is. <laughs> Sounds like a roundabout way. You know? Halfway around the about way. Yeah, that's great. That's nuts. Did you have a question, Zach? You looked like you're eager. You're you're leaning in the mic. Uh, I guess we can. Uh, no, is it something off script? Off script. Um, let me think about one for a little. You think? Because I have a follow up question for Dr. Allarding right now too. Okay. So you have been which? Where have you worked in Antarctica? What stations? For people to kind of understand when they look. On My the... first winter in 2015 was at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station at the South Pole. Um, Did you run around it naked? Uh, not naked. I had on my boxer Grinch, uh, my Grinch boxer shorts that I took I down specifically for that reason. <laughs> you gave him his Grinch boxer shorts to run around the South Pole? Yeah, I didn't know exactly that would be their purpose, but... That's what he wore. You didn't know yeah. that would be their first. Have you, have you enshrined them? No. No, they're still in my drawer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, may, I may, may go back. need them again. I may need them again. So the South Pole, which when we think of the South Pole, that's the big one with the dome, right? That's now buried or whatever. Or The, the dome uh, was uh, removed in 2010 completely. It hadn't been used since uh, about 2008. Uh, the new station down there, the large station, about 80,000 square feet, uh, construction began on that in 1998. They began utilizing it around 2003, and it was officially opened in 2008. The dome was a place that people would kind of ski and hike out to over time, but because of deteriorating conditions, uh, they decided to just go ahead and completely remove the dome from the ice. Interesting. So then and that's, the, that's the place we think of with a little silver ball on the stick? That dome is a ceremonial pole. That is uh, where you get your hero uh, photo taken. That's where the dignitaries come down. It's got the 12 flags of the original signatory countries of the Antarctic Treaty, and it is not at the geographic South Pole. The geographic South Pole is the pole and marker that sits exactly at 90 degrees, zero minutes south, so that every direction from that point is north. Have you been to there? Yes, I uh, actually uh, circled the geographic South Pole in my Grinch boxer shorts uh, at minus 108.7 degrees on July 3rd, 2015. And in circling that geographic point, you are literally circling the world because you pass through every time zone in the world. Did Just you feel by it? making that circle. I did, I was exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> so what other what other stations have you have you been at at the South at, in Antarctica? Not the South Pole, but you've been to the South Pole. But what other stations do you, you work at? En route to the South Pole, I was at McMurdo Station, which is the oldest and largest. Uh, it's been uh, operational since about 1956, and uh, it is uh, reachable uh, by plane uh, all year long. In fact, they're bringing. Uh, uh, flights in about every six weeks during the winter now. Uh, that started, uh, I believe, the winter after I got off the ice. Uh, but the winter I was there, they were not making any flights uh, at all. Um, McMurdo Station and then Palmer Station is the smallest station that was opened in 1968. That's on Anvers Island in the Antarctic uh, Archipelago, uh, which is about uh, well, 64 uh, degrees south, so it's not quite within the Antarctic Circle at uh, 65 degrees. Pretty balmy. Uh, actually, compared to South Pole, it's extremely balmy, and it's actually, I've been colder in Ohio during the winter than I was at any time during uh, my time at the Palmer Station, which was six months. 
unbelievable. And and this and we have so are those the three U.S. stations then? Those are the three yes. U.S. permanent stations. The U.S. also operates a number of different summer stations during the summer season down there. Uh, there are about 70 uh, stations on Antarctica, represented by about 53 different countries. So there are a lot of people down there uh, working on this uh, peaceful, cooperative effort to develop science. Man, that's amazing. Well, so going down there, Right, there's some preparation. What is what is involved with preparing? Well, first of all, I guess maybe we should talk about the difference between working in the Antarctic summer and working wintering over. What, right. what are the different considerations in preparing for the trips, and what are they? How do they differ? Uh, the Antarctic summer uh, usually starts uh, in early November uh, when the temperatures are starting to warm up and the daylight is becoming increasingly longer. Um, so the summer season, uh, you'll see temperatures uh, on the coastal areas, uh, oftentimes uh, in the 20s to even the 40s on a fairly regular basis. Uh, the sun reaches, uh, I think it's zenith, around uh, the middle of December, the, uh, the December solstice, solstice, the winter solstice, that's when the sun reaches its zenith at 23.5 degrees above the horizon. And from that point on then, it starts going down and the days start becoming shorter again. And uh, by uh, January, uh, middle January, late January, you're getting out of the summer season and starting into the winter season and the temperatures drop significantly and precipitately uh, during that time, and the days get shorter and shorter until the sun actually sets for the one time uh, at the South Pole on March 21st, and the sun doesn't rise again until September 21st. And during that time, you've got about eight weeks of dusk, uh, civil, nautical and astronomical twilight, where as the sun gets below the horizon a certain number of degrees, you go into different stages of the twilight. And then the same when the sun is rising uh, towards sunrise, you have a dawn where the sun gradually comes up to the horizon, giving you various stages of dawn, again, astronomical, nautical, and uh, civil twilight. So those are periods of partial light. Uh, you're completely in the dark from about mid-May through mid-August. It is completely dark with the exception of the uh, night sky, uh, which is abundant with stars and satellites and planets. Uh, And then the moon goes through a cycle every two weeks where the moon will rise and uh, set over a two-week period. Wow. Man. That begs the question, I guess. I suppose you've probably got astronomers down there. Astrophysics and astronomy are probably the biggest emphasis uh, on the South Pole uh, station. Uh, some involvement in McMurdo and Palmer Station, but uh, South Pole Station, that's the, the big research going on there is astrophysics and uh, neutrino science. So uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the first segment. I got to clean up the little housekeeping here with Peg and Zach, but I do have, I'm wondering, do they ever go to total lights out to get rid of all light pollution for observations? During the winter, we put cardboard over all the windows so there's no light pollution from inside the station to outside the station because there are extremely sensitive white light uh, sensors, aurora sensors, 
uh, on the roofs of the station that if they were suddenly exposed to a white light, uh, it could do significant damage to those sensors and they are hugely expensive to replace. Red lights are used outside. You can wear a red headlamp. You can use a red light. We have red lights to uh, mark the buildings so that the heavy equipment isn't running into corners and things. But there's no white light outside uh, unless it's planned for like an emergency uh, problem, and in which case the uh, researchers turn off the sensors so that it, they're not being surprised. Yeah, have you been outside when it's been completely lights out dark? What's no. that? Ex huh? Most most of my winter was lights out dark, and I was outside almost on a daily basis with no ambient light. No ambient light. What's that like? Because most Americans have never experienced that. We you're completely until you're in cold total darkness, you're really unaware of how much light we actually have at any given time, even at nighttime, street lights or whatever else. What's it like to be just total darkness, save for the heavens? Incredibly peaceful, <laughs> spiritual. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It is. Uh, you've got the Aurora Australis also lighting the winter sky, uh, which is the uh, southern equivalent to the Aurora Borealis. And some of those light shows are just absolutely spectacular and, and light up the sky almost like fireworks. Man, I've seen Aurora Borealis above the Arctic Circle, and that's amazing. I can it imagine is. it's got to be beautiful down there. Zach, you, you find your, did you find your voice? Yeah, so I guess one question what I had was, uh, what's one thing that, uh, you'll never take for granted again after being down there, you know? Like, for me, when I was hiking, I didn't realize how much I like chairs, you know, or something like that, or, like, or like how, how much you take for granted some small things that we have everyday basis. I guess, you know, lights could be one of them, but what, what was it for you? Oh, that's a hard question to answer because uh, I prepared myself well. I wasn't really surprised by anything. Um I suppose just the, the, the gratitude of having a uh, warm building to get into after you've been out in those extreme minus 100 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. Um, it was always such a, a welcome sight, and uh, you, you never took them for granted. Peggy, you've been making notes. Do you have some, some, some thoughts? Um, I just thought as far as... Uh the way the station looks, what comes to mind is the beer can. The beer can? Mm -hmm. It's not a dome, but... <laughs> the beer can is a uh, aluminum structure that covers a four-story stairwell, uh, and it looks like a big aluminum beer can. Um, Who sponsors it? Well, it, it is not sponsored, nor is it, it is not a sanctioned title by the U.S. Antarctic Program or the National imagine. Science Foundation, but it is the most common reference to that uh, entrance and exit to the station. And it uh, goes from the first floor of the, the top floor of the station to the second floor, down to the ground level, and then uh, about 20 feet below uh, the ice where the ice tunnels and much of what goes on at the South Pole is involved. Uh, a large portion of the mechanics of the South Pole occur uh, 20 feet under the ice. There are ice tunnels. We have a huge uh, warehouse down there uh, where all of our uh, food is stored. We have huge uh, fuel tanks um, to store 400,000 gallons of uh, JP-8 uh, airplane fuel, which is what the station uh, operates on. Um, our power plant, all of our diesel work, uh, water lines, sewage lines, everything is under the ice. 
And this is at McMurdo? Where is this at again? This is at the South Pole. Okay. And the station name is again? Amundsen Scott. Amundsen Scott. Amundsen right. Scott. Amundsen Scott Station. I get them confused sometimes between McMurdo and Amundsen Scott. So, man. So do they do they tanker that fuel in by aircraft They, they over over the ice cap? How do they get it there? Traditionally, they always came in in the wings of the LC-130s, a little bit at a time uh, over the entire season to, to get the capacity that they would need to have to start the winter, which is about 400,000 gallons. Um, my winter down there in 2015 was the first year that they actually were able to bring at least half of the fuel in uh, via an overland route using uh, Caterpillar tractopillars pulling huge fuel bladders. Really? From McMurdo Station, 870 miles. Uh, took about a month uh, to get there, but they made three trips during the, their summer. Uh, and brought in half the fuel, and that saved uh, an incredible number of airplane flights that would have been required to uh, t- uh, bring that fuel up to its uh, capacity for our t- winter to start. Did you ever take pictures of that, the vehicles? Uh, I didn't have pictures. I got pictures of them that other people have taken. I did not get any pictures myself. Where can someone see a, is Are they posted somewhere on the Internet someone could look at that? Oh, yeah, you should be able to find them easily just by, uh, you know, Googling... Uh, uh, fuel transport Antarctica or something like I, that. I'd like to see what those machines look like. Because the engineer in me is thinking about the extremes and the, and the, the impact on machinery mm. of 870 miles of across ice hauling stuff. That's, man, that, that is really impressive. They're Caterpillar too, right? Yes. Made in America. Made in America. <laughs> That's awesome. As were our generators. As were your generators that don't ever fail, right? Never. I like seeing the big C. We did have three of them. One of them was always operating. One was being preventative maintenance, and one was standing by uh, in case we needed to uh, fire it up in emergency. And then they also had a smaller uh, cat uh, generator. They called the peaker that if they just needed a little more power, they could uh, bring up the peaker and uh, didn't use as much fuel or require as much uh, work as bringing up one of the big cats. Awesome. Well, okay, so that's a great place to stop for the first segment. I'm going to thank you for being here for, the, for this. Pleasure. And then uh, you're going to be here for the second segment, right? I will. That's awesome. Peg, thank you, too. It's, it, I'm glad you came. I know you're here to, on, a, on a husband-wife. It is, uh, is the Allerdings 33rd wedding anniversary year, too, so that's a big thing. And I know they spend a lot of time together when Dr. Allerding is not on the ice cap. And so they're taking a nice ride down through southeast Ohio today. And, of course, Zach is here, and you're coming. You're going to be here. Technically speaking, it's only going to be about a minute, but it, for you it'll be like a week. So <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for joining us. We'll catch you on the second segment of uh, Dr. John Allerding. Dio and uh, his adventures in Antarctica. Rotations is an experiment in student medical journalism. Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. 
Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Nigel's gonna call. You got to Look, it's like it's. See, you could do that. Yeah, hi. <laughs> we're talking. To, we're talking to Australia. It's like magic. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> How does that even? It's not good morning. It's like you know, oh, night time. He already ate dinner. Yeah, yeah. We're drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah, we're drinking oh, well, coffee. Yeah. All I'm, right. I'm, I'm just, I'll just grab my glasses. <laughs> I can see you better. That's better. Yeah. Awesome. Hi, Nigel. How are you? How's it going? It's going okay. I'm going to do a couple things here real quick. Let's see.